Our goal this evening is to um, make it through Psalm 3 to Psalm 7. We started the book of Psalms. There's 150 Psalms. Last Sunday we uh, only got to Psalm 2 and already we were talking about Battle of Armageddon. Psalm 2 begins with the messianic or prophetic aspect of the book of Psalms. Beginning with chapter 3 tonight, we're going to um, try to put ourselves into this, into this story as we find out what's going on inside of David when he was running from his own son Absalom, who was a son in rebellion, trying to take his father's throne. We'll read the narrative, but what the Psalms do is tells us what David was going through emotionally at the time, how he handled the situation, and um, it reminds me of uh, Psalm 22, where we know the narrative of Jesus on the cross. But what Psalm 2 probably gives us more detail and insight is what the Lord was going through at that time. What we don't have in the Gospels, we have clarified for, for us in the Psalms. As we look at Psalm 3 tonight, 3 through 7 is actually a setting and um, they're to be taken, and I, I discovered something today, and I didn't realize it, and I, I realized the only way it could really be discovered is if you're studying the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. I connected and never found it before that Psalm 3 and Psalm 7 are going to connect. Uh, Psalm 3 is going to deal with Absalom, and Psalm 7 is going to be a part of that story, and I'm not going to give it away because it's where I'm going on Sunday, but... I'll whet your appetite a little bit tonight and make you curious. How does that sound? All right, so let's dive into Psalm Psalm 3. We'll read it. It's only uh, eight verses long, and then we'll come back and dissect it. But this is a Psalm of David, and he's writing it as he's fleeing from his son Absalom. So verse 1, Lord, how have they increased who trouble me? Many are they who rise up against me. And many are they who say to me, there's no help for him in God, Selah. But you, Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. And I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of 10,000 people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah. Let's turn to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 18. We read here where... David is saying, though 10,000 would surround me, he's going to put his trust in the Lord. This is where we're going to be on Sunday. I've titled Sunday's message, On the Run. And um, as great of a man as David was, he had his faults, he had his shortcomings, they had their consequences. One of the consequences of David, David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba was incest in his own house. And um, as a result, um, Absalom gets involved with killing a brother because he was involved with the incest. It resulted in Absalom being put into exile for a period of some three years or so. And um, finally, Joab talks him into bringing Absalom back to Jerusalem. If you look at chapter 14, verse 33, so Joab went to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on the face to the ground before the king, and then the king kissed Absalom. They had been estranged for three years. And um, we're picking it up now. Um, One of the heirs, if you want to call it, is a typo is actually one of the few in the scriptures, but critics of the Bible like to point it out. 
It says in verse 7, it says, after 40 years, Absalom said to the king, well, we know that's not possible. It's supposed to be four. I'll just point it out. You guys can do with it what you want to. But um, we're having here a root of bitterness that has grown in Absalom. Um, We're told here that there was nobody in Israel that looked better than Absalom. Verse 25 of the previous chapter, from the top of his head to the bottom of his foot, nobody looked better than Absalom. He was king material, sort of Ronald Reagan style, (laughs) as I would think of it. But what he begins to do is win over the hearts of the people that are in Jerusalem, And um, in the first five or six verses here, uh, he would meet the people that were coming in to see David for judgment. They would have uh, a civil matter. Uh, They would want the king's advice. And um, what what Absalom would do is sort of cut them off at the pass and get their attention. And um, he would, you know, he'd smooge them, he'd butter up to them. And he said, oh, if I were king, you know, I'd give you all the time in the world, and I'd hear your case. You've got a good case. And uh, in verse 6, it says, In this manner, Absalom acted toward Israel, and he came to the king for judgment, and so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So little by little, he's working his way in. He has an agenda. He has a motive. And that motive is to eliminate his father, He is embittered against his father. And uh, verse 7, so it came to pass after four years now being back in Jerusalem, uh, he comes up with this story where he wants to go to Hebron and um, to worship the Lord. That's all tongue-in-cheek. He doesn't want to do that at all. He's going there to plot a rebellion to overthrow David. And if you go cut down to verse 12, we're going to be introduced to Ahipothel. There's a whole study within itself. Ahipothel would have been one of David's trusted counselors, probably the sharpest guy in David's cabinet. And um, he joins up with Absalom. And that's a whole study within itself. I'll probably touch a little bit on it on Sunday. But the point is, in verse 12, it says in the bottom here that the conspiracy grew strong, For the people with Absalom continually increased in number. And the word got out to David that, um, uh, verse 13, that people were lining up behind Absalom. Absalom's declaring himself to be king, and he's, he's on the march, and it's time to get out of Dodge. Now, for whatever reason, David succumbs to this, and uh, he pretty much just heads out of town. I'll, I'll develop this more on, on Sunday. But as we're into the Psalms, what we're having here in Second Samuel 15 through 18 is the actual story without really getting into when David's by himself and he's going through the events. Um, it comes out in Psalm 3. So Psalm 3 is written during this narrative that we're studying here tonight. He leaves 10 of his concubines behind and uh, he goes over and he crosses over the Kidron. The Kidron would be, um, (laughs) I remember Jerry Crash and I 20 years ago um, climbing the wall, going over where we weren't supposed to uh, and going down past uh, the eastern gate, climbing down the wall, going down over the Kidron and up to... uh, uh, the Mount of Olives. So if you're, if you're familiar with Jerusalem, uh, the Kidron would be between the Mount of Olives and the Golden Gate and where the Temple Mount is. So David is, if you can picture him, he doesn't have any shoes on. Uh, his mighty men are with him, and he's leaving town. Now, chapter 16, we're introduced to somebody who's going to come into our story again on Sunday, and we'll look at him a little bit farther uh, when, when we get to chapter 7. And um, all I want to tell you about him now is David is on the run. That's why I called this message on Sunday, On the Run. And he, is, he talks about, again, pouring out his heart. But we run into this guy 
um, in verse 7, who's called Shimei. And he sees David, and he comes out alongside the road, and he starts cussing David out. And uh, it just tells us that he was the house of Saul. And um, Saul is, of course, dead now. He either, he either committed suicide or he was killed by the uh, Philistines on Mount Gilboa. It's up for debate what happened to him. But this would have been a descendant of King Saul. Now David is on the throne. He's got an, we'd say today he's got an ax to grind. Uh, he could have been very, if he was related to Saul, he would have been very well taken care of. Bills would have been taken care of. And now Saul's no longer in the picture. David is. So he comes out and he starts laying into David. And David um, is taking it. He's, he's just ignoring this guy basically. But Abishai, verse 8, he couldn't, he couldn't handle this. This guy was cursing out his king. And even though David was handling it, it was really rubbing Abishai the wrong way. So he basically says, uh, verse 9, David, let me go over and let's just, let me just take his head off. I'll, I'll make it quick. It'll be, he, he won't know what happened to him. That'll be all there's to it. And um, that'll be the end of it. But David wouldn't do it. David uh, said, how do you know that this guy hasn't been raised up by the Lord to curse me? I don't know that. And so David is, is um, confused. He's um, concerned about Absalom. He's having this guy who's really of no concern to David as he's hightailing out of town. And uh, he said, maybe the Lord will bless me for not killing this guy right now. I don't know. Verse 12, it may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and the Lord will repay me with good for the cursing that's happening this day. And so long story short, they leave, but this guy doesn't leave him alone. He continues on cursing David. And David at this time waits for um, one of his advisors that he's going to plant back in Jerusalem. I'll leave it there for now. So the setting for the psalm that we're looking at, let's go back to Psalm 3. So what David is now, after the night has come to an end, after this day is through, we're going to tie this into Psalm 7. They, They dovetail very nicely together. Uh, When it says, there are many who rise up against me, what he has in view here is Absalom coming down from Hebron. Absalom's going to come into town. He's going to ask for counsel from David's best friend, Ahipothel, who tells him, well, David left 10 concubines behind. Go put a tent up on the housetop, and you go, go into him. And all Israel will know that you're the king, and uh, we'll take care of David. So at the end of the day, that, that's the narrative, but as you look at the psalm, he is, he is taking this with all that's going on on that day. He's actually able to, verse 5, I will lay down and sleep. I woke for the Lord sustained me. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to worry about Shimei, who's cussing me out. I'm not going to worry about Absalom. I will not be afraid of 10,000 people who set themselves against me. Now, those that are setting against me, we're talking about a change in uh, in the regime, in the government, from that of David, presumably, to that of Absalom. That's what's taking place here. And um, what he does, and this is the main thing that we want to get as we go through the Psalms. You can say you have faith. You can say it all day long. But unless that faith is actually tested, and you have to put it into practice, how do you know if you have faith or not, if it's not tried and tested? Somebody want to shout out a little amen there? You know, unless you're put in an environment, unless you're put in a situation where things are on the line, and you have the, let's say you have the ability to have an Abishai by you that could actually take care of matters rather quickly. And you have your people in place, and you can have your problems taken care of or you have the resources to do it, but you choose none of that because you go, how do you know what the Lord wants in a situation? And you put it in the Lord's hands and say, Lord, either I rise or I fall, balls in your court, but I'm not gonna trust in my right-hand guy, I'm gonna trust in you. You hear what's being said, 
Perhaps this will be turned around someday with Shimei. And we'll get into, I promise we'll get into that in chapter 7 and also uh, on Sunday morning. Because exactly what David said, when you do put it in the Lord's hands, now your faith is being exercised, and um, thus we have Psalm 3. So it's a pretty radical change, isn't it, from going from the Battle of Armageddon in Psalm 2? 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 really do fit together, and I never saw how much they dovetail together until I was studying this afternoon, especially chapter 3 and especially chapter 7, because they're both going to involve the whole story of Absalom and Shimei in particular. Chapter 4. As we get into chapter 4, if you go to the end, it's probably a good place to start this psalm is to go to the last two verses, because it's actually an evening prayer. Verse 8 says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in in safety. So I know from, you know, even when we were unsaved in the Deauville family, um, mom would come up every single night, and um, uh, we would uh, say the Lord's Prayer, and at the end of the Lord's Prayer, we'd say, and bless mommy and daddy and Uncle Bob and Aunt Jean, and we'd go just through the list. You try every... The dog, the cat, and everything you could think of was all part of your your prayer list, and we just did it. And um, none of us knew the Lord at the time. We were churchgoers, but none of us were born again. And so we had what Jesus would call a vain, repetitious prayer. When it came to uh, supper, well, it was, Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. Let this food to us be blessed. Amen. That was it. We had it down. We had it memorized. And it really didn't mean a whole lot. Uh, it was just a, you know, a cultural practice that we had. And um, the Lord actually teaches against that. He likes to know what's going on um, right at the moment. He wants you to talk to him like David talked to the Lord here. He laid it all out. And so as we get to Psalm 4, it's an evening prayer. And the context here in uh, Psalm 4 um, really is... Songs and prayer really for deliverance. Let's look at the first three verses. Hear me when I call, O God, of of my righteousness. You have relieved me when I was in distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? And how long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood, Selah? Now again, say la is pause, contemplate, meditate, think on what was just said. We find it in two verses in chapter, th- in chapter 3, verse 2 and 4, both end with say la. So after uh, David makes these statements, he's pausing himself. Now remember, this would have been put to music. If I'm putting this to music right now, and... Um, uh, you have a salah, salah moment many, many of the times during our worship songs. You'll notice that there's, we, we quit singing and maybe um, uh, Tim will play something uh, on, on guitar. That's just by itself. It's not, it's not singing, but it's, it's uh, just musical. That's sort of what I see here with the Selah. Remember, every one of these is set to, like Psalm 4, is set to stringed instruments. It would have been sung. I wanted to sing Psalm 5. I'm going to get my nasal thing taken care of eventually. And then I'll be able to sing again. And what I wanted to do tonight is actually stop in Psalm 5 and actually sing, because it's it's a song that I've sung for many, many years as a morning song. But this one was an evening song. And um, when we get to verse 3, there would have been that break. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly, The Lord will hear when I call to him. Here, this whole idea of being set apart. When you come to Christ, the very terminology of the church means called out ones. If you're a Christian, born again believer, you have to realize that you have been called out of something and into something else. You've been called out of the world in which we live and into the body of Christ and you've become 
the bride to the bridegroom. And go, going with that is you are set apart. We sang a Richie Frey song tonight. Richie's got a song that's just called Set Apart. The Bible teaches being set apart. When he called his disciples, he called them individually. And whatever they were doing, they quit what they were doing. And let's just take Peter, for instance. I mean, the most successful day in Peter's life in, in the business world is when he got saved. And he left his nets, and he followed. And um, he said, come and follow me. And they had to leave what they were doing, and uh, they had to count the cost. Second um, Corinthians 6 says, come out from among them, be separate. And here's that being separated again says the Lord, and do not touch the unclean thing and I'll receive you. I can tell you a little story personally just how it happened to me. And um, I'd like to tell you that after the Lord called me and spoke to me about it, I'd like to say I did it the next day. I didn't. I waited because I realized I would be leaving a lifestyle and going into a completely different lifestyle. So it was like it was yesterday. This um, uh, young kid, he was only... 19 or 20 years old, and he was pastoring a Shiloh house. And we were fellowshipping there, me and my friend Pat. And, um, and we were involved, in, and I enjoyed evangelism very, very much, always witnessing the people. And Andy recognized it. And he says, you know, Dwight, I know that God is calling you into Shiloh. That was the name of the ministry out of Calvary Chapel. And he says, well, I told him, I says, well, you may know that, Andy, but I don't know that. And as soon as the Lord tells me, I'll, I'll let you know. And how is he going to let me know anyway? Well, he's going to show you through, through, through the Bible. And I said, really? He's going to show me through the Bible? He says, yep, he's going to show you. So he had no sooner said that, and I said, Lord, you heard what he said. Uh, he's going to show me through the Bible that I'm supposed to go to Shiloh. And, um, and I said, what am I supposed to do? Just open the book like this and plop it open to like, uh, 1 Kings 14, verse 2, and put my finger down there and look at it. And it says, and I'm in chapter 14 and verse 2. And when, you've got to remember, this was really, really a long time ago. <laughs> and I don't recommend this for calling in the ministry. But this is how the Lord spoke to me at that time in my youngness in the Lord. And I did one of these things. And my finger landed on 1 Kings 14 and it landed on the words, get thee to Shiloh, quote, unquote. And I said, you got to be kidding me. And um, I knew it wasn't a coincidence because the Lord had already been dealing with me about it. I'd like to tell you I was obedient and I was separated here and then. No, there was a tug of war that went on inside of this body for the next nine months because I enjoyed putting a backpack on my back and hitting the road whenever I wanted to. I didn't want the rules and the, the separateness that I saw in their lifestyle. These guys were committed. These guys were sold out. They had pretty much given up everything. And uh, it, took me, it took me a good period of time, but I, I finally yielded to that and understood the separateness of lifestyle. Now, lest you would be confused and uh, you say, well, I haven't done that. I've had the same job ever since I've been born again. The Bible says unless the Lord specifically calls you, you are to remain in the state you were in when you were saved. And that state doesn't mean Michigan or Iowa or Kansas. No, the state that you're in, your job that you're in. And you're used in that realm of influence because that's where God has placed you unless he, speaks to the, unless he speaks to you otherwise. For me personally, I thought this is the rest of my life. And this is serious. So Lord, if this is you, you're going to have to be the one to really reconfirm this because we're talking about my life here. And um, he confirmed it in many, many different ways. What's your point? Separated. We are separated even, um, we have to have this understanding that we're Christians first and whatever your job description is, that's second. So you want to give me an amen on that? Either Jesus is the Lord of your life or he's not. And so David says here in verse 3, but know that the Lord has set apart for himself. Why are you set apart? Well, he wants you to be first in his life. So you're a, you are set apart from this world that we live in. 
Paul told Timothy, be a good soldier, Timothy. You're passing through this world. You'll be a pilgrim and you'll be a stranger and you touch it ever so lightly. You don't get entangled with the affairs of this life. So you can be a good soldier for the Lord. You entered an army and that army is, uh, has uh, one Lord over it. And so it's to him we give an account, but and then it says, the Lord will hear when I, when I call to him. The next verses, four and five, are actually quoted in the New Testament. It says, be angry and do not sin. You go, that sounds familiar. Where have I heard that before? Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still, Selah. Well, that's exactly what Selah means. Meditate and be still. And um, sometimes when the Lord does speak to you, that's time to kick back and reflect upon what the Lord might have just spoken to you about. And, uh, but here, be angry and sin not. Um, it's in my margin. Or it, it probably is in yours. Uh, let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to the book of Ephesians, where it comes from. It talks a little bit about the old man and the new man in Ephesians 4. The first part of uh, Ephesians 4 is one of my favorite parts in the Bible because it talks about what happened those three days when Jesus died on the cross. He told the thief on the cross that today he was going to be with him in paradise. And we know that he didn't go to heaven for three days because when he did raise from the dead on the third day, Mary, were, Mary was there, Mary Magdalene, and she grabbed onto the Lord and wouldn't let go. And the Lord says, Mary, don't hang on to me like that. I have not yet ascended to my Father. So the whole, unless you have Ephesians 4, it tells us what happened between the time that Jesus died on the cross and where he was for those three days. In the Gospels, he said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man is going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the first part of Ephesians, chapter 4, tells us that before he ascended, he descended. And he was there for three days, and he set the captives free. It's a lengthy study. But it gets into Luke 16. It gets into the rich man and Lazarus, one being in Abraham's bosom, one being in torment, and these two chambers being separated. What Jesus basically did is it tells us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, these Old Testament saints all died in faith, but they, didn't, they died and they didn't receive the promise. They were waiting for something. And Hebrews tells us they were waiting for that, that kingdom whose builder and maker is God. Well, one day God showed up, and uh, he set the captives free. That's what verse 9 is all about here. And then when he did ascend into heaven, we read in the Gospels that Jesus said, it's expedient, absolutely necessary that I leave. Because if I don't leave, I can't send the Holy Spirit back to this world. So what's the next thing we read? Jesus is in heaven in chapter 10. And then uh, that he might fill all things. And then he gave gifts, some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So this is the book of Acts, chapter 2, the Holy Spirit being sent. So I love the first part of Ephesians chapter 4. It fills in the blanks of those three days, what the Lord did. All right? Um, verses 17 through 22 are the characteristics of our old lifestyle, the way we walked when we were unsaved and so on and so forth. But picking up in verse 23 is where we get our verse, be angry and sin not. This is, is really quoted now from Psalm 4. So let's pick it up in verse 23. This is the new nature as born-again believers that we are to possess. We are to be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you might put on the new man which was created according to God in righteousness and true holiness. Therefore, because now you have this new life, don't lie anymore. Be straight up, tell the truth. Each one speak truth to his neighbor. Um, don't embellish, don't add to the story what isn't there. For we are members of one another. And then it says, be angry 
and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And in my margin, I have Psalm 4, verse 4. So Paul, in talking about the nature of the born-again believer, says that you're not to go to bed as a hothead, you know. If you can make it right, you know, if you want to lay down, like David said, I lay down in peace, say la, and it's great, and it's sweet, and it's nice to be able to get to sleep. If you're really upset and uptight with somebody, you're going to be tossing and turning all night long. And here, here's, here's the kicker. You might be the only one that's upset. <laughs> the other person may not even know it. And you're the one who's tossing and turning. Do yourself a favor. Get over it. Give it to the Lord. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Even if it's just between you and the Lord. You know, I said, Lord, that guy's wrong, I'm right, or the other way around, whatever. Just let it go. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Nor give place to the devil. You see, that's just fertile ground for the enemy to bring in bitterness between the brethren. If you were a thief before, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. I used to steal. I worked in a grocery store. It's, it's been... 45 years, I think I'll get this off my chest here tonight in the Wednesday night Bible study. (laughs) I don't think I've ever told this one before. But I was probably 16 years old, too young to legally be drinking beer. But, you know, being in a grocery store, I had this habit of taking a case and sticking it out in the dumpster and then waiting for the store to close. And after the store, everybody was gone, well, I would just come back later. Well, I did this for... Two, two years every Friday night, never got caught. And one time, one other guy in the store did it because he saw that I was always doing it. And uh, wouldn't you know that that was the night that the manager went out and threw some garbage in there and looks down and sees a case of beer? And he comes in and he says, Dwight, you're fired. He had expected me for years, <laughs> two years. And I said, I didn't do nothing. And I didn't. I mean, that was the one time I didn't do it. And some other guy did it, and, and he got fired. And um, now I can sleep tonight because I got that off my conscience after 45 years. No, just kidding. But the bottom line is I thought nothing of it before, before I was born again. My conscience didn't bother me. If I could get away with that, I did it. And uh, I did. And um, uh, so, but, you know, right after I got saved, I wasn't so concerned about stealing anymore, I was really concerned about my buddies being saved. I mean, I had a complete transition of thought process. And um, uh, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give who has need. In other words, one of the motives just to work is so that you can help somebody else who doesn't have any money. Now, again, in the communal days, this was real practical. Um, we uh, worked good hard days and we did it with the purpose of taking the, the resources that we had so people could go on, on to Bible school and it wouldn't cost them anything. And it was a great system. And it was the same way in the early church when you read in the book of Acts. Um, we found 3,000 people get saved in one day and they're from all over the world. What are you going to do with them all? And they wanted to stay to hear Peter teach and get rooted and grounded in the, in the scriptures. So there was a guy named Barnabas. He had a piece of land, sold the land, gave all the money to the brethren there so that uh, uh, they would be provided for. And um, that can be done with a right motive and a wrong motive. I mean, when you read the next chapter, what do you have? You have Ananias and Sapphira. Well, they saw... Everybody going up to Barnabas to go, man, Barnabas, he was probably just doing it unto the Lord. But Ananias and Sapphira, they, they saw the attention that Barnabas was getting, so they do the same thing. Husband and wife get together and they say, here's the deal, we'll say we'll give this much money, but we really won't, we'll only give this much money, but we'll tell them we're giving them that much money. And so they go and the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter and says, these guys aren't telling the truth. And so... One of them, Ananias, comes in and says, yeah, we're going to give you this much money. And 
Peter calls him out and says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? Falls over dead. His wife comes in half an hour later. And uh, Peter says, well, tell me if this is the story. This is what your husband said. Is that the way it is? Yeah, that's the way it is. She falls over dead. And what it tells us is that great fear fell upon the church because they saw that you could not mess around with telling lies to God. Now, if that was still in play today, everybody would be dead in the pews. That would be just the way it is, okay? Because I have lied since I've been born again, okay? And, uh, but I find that in the beginning there are certain precedences, uh, and that was one of them. And they learned to be very, very serious about what they said. All right, I'm getting a little sidetracked. <laughs> a little sidetracked, right. All right. Uh, <laughs> The idea of stealing no more and actually working so that other people can benefit by it. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. You know, Jesus said, let your yay be yay, your nay be nay. You don't need to add to it or take away from it. Um, but what is good for necessary edification? One of the reasons, sort of a safety valve, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, it is a safety valve. And um, that it may be imparted grace to the hearers. And uh, do not grieve the Holy Spirit in whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking, let that all be put away from you. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as Christ and God forgave you. So here, let's go back to Psalm 4. We left off with uh, Psalm verse, verse 4. Be angry and sin not. Well, here when Paul was writing to the Ephesians, the Holy Spirit impressed upon him to put that into the new nature of the born-again believer. Verse 5, of the sacrifice of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us, for you have put gladness in my heart more than in the, the season that their grain and wine increase. I was reading um, Wisdom for Today this morning, and Chuck was commenting on uh, the benefits of having a merry heart. It's like a medicine. And, um, and just the op- I think he commented on just the opposite being true. If you hold bitterness and wrath, that could actually work against your immune system and your body. But the Bible teaches a merry heart does good like a, like a medicine. The endorphins are let loose, you know, and just feel, feel better. And uh, here David is saying just that. You have put gladness, Lord, in my heart. Makes me think of the song, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. You have put more gladness, more than the seasons with their grain and wine increases. And then he says, when I go to bed at night, verse 8, I will lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I jotted as I was studying today in my margin, Psalm 23, because that's exactly what it says. That he has laid me to lie down in green pastures. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down. He gives me that peace of mind. And so that even in the middle of the storm, the, the believer can have, you know, just that confidence that, you know, the Lord's going to work it out. I'm one of his. He belongs to me. That's his problem if I belong to him. Brings us to Psalm 5. And um, this, is, this is a psalm that has been put to music. It was part of uh, Praise Strings. Uh, the brother who put it to music um, wrote it, and it, the Lord gave it to him when he was at En Gedi, uh, down by the Dead Sea. And uh, as I read it, I can't help but think of the melody. Give, this is a morning song. It was, it was put to music. Give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you will I pray, my voice you will hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning, I will direct it to you, and I will look up. Well, I got a melody going around in my head. And um, um, 
it's a song that has been a part, part of uh, my life as long as I can remember. And when I do play, I play this one often, especially in the morning. For you, now in verses 4 through 6, we're looking at the nature of the God we serve. As David is meditating on the Lord, he's thinking, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful are not going to stand in your sight. Uh, You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehoods. And the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. Hamas is a big trouble. You know, they, they are, they are uh, worse than murderers because they're putting innocent women and children as their shields. Now, that's not being a man. If you're going to fight, fight. But don't put a woman and children in front of you. And that's the cowardness that we see coming here. Now, if I despise that, when David wrote Psalm 139, it ends. Here's this beautiful psalm. But then he ends it by saying, do not I hate those who hate you? He says, yes, I do. I hate them with perfect hatred. Well, you're supposed to love your enemy and love your neighbor. Yeah, well, that's true. But the other side of the coin is the nature of God is to eventually bring that into just, just, justice and judgment. And he will. And so here, David, understanding the nature, you hate all workers of iniquity. I mean, we have a conscience. And whether you're born again or not, you still have a conscience. When I was stealing the beer, I knew it was wrong, but I just didn't care. You know, you still know that was wrong and that's right. And so David has this, this awareness here. So in verses four through six, we, we're looking at David understanding that the God that he serves is a righteous God who hates evil and hates lawlessness. Verses 7 and 8 is more David's nature. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercies. Now, I'm I'm sure he probably has the temple in mind. Uh, The Temple Mount was the the center of uh, the Jewish world. If you were a Jew, you, a male Jew, you were required to end up in Jerusalem three times a year on three three of the, the separate feasts. And um, it was David who said, one thing I will desire, and that is to be in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than do anything else. Just let me be around, be around the Lord. And so David's nature is, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship you towards your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before my face. So here, here's David's prayer. We're getting a little glimpse of um, <clears throat> what he delights in, what satisfies his soul, is being in the, the house of the Lord and fellowshipping with his, his creator. Now, verse 9, we are simply told the, the nature of the wicked person. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongues. So now David, just exercising his insight, um, talks about the wicked in verse 9. Verse 10, again, the eventual outcome of those um, who practice lawlessness avoid um, the gospel, pronounce them guilty, O God, let them fall by their own counsel, cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions. Why? Because they're in rebellion against you. They don't have the fear of you to do what is good and right. And 11 through 12 is now switching, and in verse 10 we see the judgment eventually will come upon the wicked. Nobody gets away with anything. Everything you ever said, thought, or recorded, if you're a non-believer, it's all downloaded. I mean, we we have hard drives today. We can download everything. Unless you work for the IRS, then you can delete things and you'll never find them ever, ever again. They just disappear mysteriously. But everything else you can find. 
Verse 11, on the other side of it, the outcome of the righteous. But let all those who, who rejoice, who put their trust in you, let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. And let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. So as we look at Psalm 5, again, it begins as a beautiful meditation of a song to be sung in the morning, again set to music. Psalm 6 is uh, divided into, I like the Psalms because they are so real and honest when it gets down to the nitty-gritty everyday stuff in life. It's, um, um, it's great to come to Wednesday night or Sunday morning. It's great to fellowship with the guys. It's great to be a part of, of, uh, of the Wednesday morning prayer meeting. It's great to get letters. I just, we got an email from Ruthie today. They were telling us about the retreat that they had down in, in Sioux Falls and how you go to another Calvary and it's just like being home and everybody knows everybody, the same mindset, same kindred spirit. And they just felt like they were home. And uh, it's great hearing uh, stories like that when you have that fellowship. The other side of that coin is we're still human and you still are going to go through trials that are, you're going to think, I'll never make it through another day. That's Psalm 6. Psalm 6 is a song that talks about the reality of suffering in the Christian life. This one is to be set to a, an eight-string harp. Well, I have several six-string guitars. I have one 12-string guitar. But this was an eight-string, this one here. And this, again, would have been put to music. I would imagine I'd put this in a minor chord because it would be um, <clears throat> more, <laughs> more set to a minor chord. And it's really a, a prayer also of penance. Remember when we divided up the Psalms, I said they were in five categories. Sunday it was prophetic because we were talking about uh, Psalm 2 and um, uh, the second coming of Christ in the Battle of Armageddon. Well, this one, one of the divisions is prayers of repentance, and that's what this one is about. So let's pick it up. Oh, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. This is when we know we've sinned. We've done something that's wrong. Even David, my hero, you know, you want to say, David, say it ain't so. You committed adultery. Say it ain't so. But say it ain't so that you covered it up by killing the guy's wife. That only complicates it even more. And, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chastise me in your displeasure. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am weak. Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. And here he says, my soul is greatly troubled, but, O Lord, how long? Let's just stop here. Here is, you know, the guy that's held up as a man after God's own heart. This Psalm of David, he, just, he doesn't say he's simply troubled. He says, my soul is deeply troubled. Let's turn in the New Testament to Matthew chapter 26. Now I like this part of the Bible again because whether we'll want to admit it or not, you're gonna go through these burners. This I have written next to it is subtitled The Dark Night of the Soul. Not only did David go through it, but in Matthew 26, the Bible says that the Lord God is going to anoint Jesus with the oil of gladness. But at the same time, it says he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with, with grief, rejection. So his dark night of the soul is a place called Gethsemane. It actually means olive press. That's what Gethsemane means. And there's olive trees on the Mount of Olives, and they actually have olive presses there. And what's happening to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is he's getting pressed, except it's not olive oil that's coming out. It says the stress upon him as he realized what was about to take place, as only he could, that he sweat great drops of blood. In verse 36 of chapter 26, 
It says, 36, when Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, place of crushing, he said to his disciples, and sit here, and I'll go over there and pray. And so he took with him Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John. And he began to be sorrowful, and I want to stress these next two words, deeply distressed. David said his soul was exceedingly sorrowful. If David could be exceedingly sorrowful, and our Lord himself deeply distressed to the point of such stress that he sweats blood instead of sweat. How that happens, I don't know, but that's what the scriptures tell us. And he says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Now that's quite a statement. Um, and as we, as we search the scriptures, the great men of God, you can, you can go one day from a mountaintop experience. Look at Elisha. I mean, one day he's killing 400 prophets of Baal, calling lightning out of heaven. That's one day. And then the very next day, he's on the run from Jezebel, and he, at the end of the day, he says, it's enough. I want to die. Kill me. He wants to k- kill himself. And you can go from a mountaintop experience one day to the point of saying, yeah, that's what the Bible teaches. Why is it important for us to know this? Because you're going to go through it. And when you do go through it, when you're exceedingly sorrowful, you're to know this. Okay, I'm normal. Happened to David. Happened to Elijah. Jesus happened to Jesus. Certainly couldn't have happened to Paul. Oh, I'm glad you asked me about Paul. Let's go to Acts chapter 23. Look at Paul for a second. He was so discouraged, everybody's trying to kill him. Let's pick it up in verse 10. I could have picked so many different scriptures, but this, this, he was at a point that the Lord had to appear to him to encourage him. So Acts 23, verse 10, this is Paul. When there was a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces <laughs> by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him to the, the barracks. And he had just been, he's at the end of it. I mean, he is at the end of his rope. And the following night, the Lord stood by him. Now, why do you think the Lord showed up himself? Because that's what was needed. Be of good cheer, Paul, for you have to testify for me in Jerusalem. And so you also must bear witness to me in Rome. And the Lord just showed up and said, you're not done yet. You can't die yet, Paul. And uh, by the way, that's true for you, just as it is for the two witnesses. The witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 says they have 1,260 days. Everybody's trying to kill them every day, but nobody could. But then after their time was up, their time was up. And um, basically, this is what the Lord is telling Paul. Paul probably thought, this is it. No more. I can't go on any, any farther. They're going to kill me for sure. And uh, the Lord says, no, no, still got work for you to do. Be of good cheer. You have to go to Jerusalem. And then if you go to Jerusalem, then I'm going to have you go to Rome. You're going to lay a witness on Caesar that I think changed the man and caused him to go crazy. Boy, I could get sidetracked thinking about that one. But our point here is David was, let's go back to the psalm and why I like Psalm 6. Repentance. You go, I can't believe I did something so stupid. I know so much better, and yet I did it anyway. Or I can't believe I said something so stupid that uh, it came out of my mouth. And when once it's out, it's what? It's out there, right? And you go, how could I have ever said anything so stupid as that? And yet you did. And so you go, Lord, I can't believe I did it, but I did And that's what we have here. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or be displeased. Have mercy on me and heal me. For my soul is greatly troubled. I know better. And yet, you know, we have these, he's mindful that we have these feet of clay. I'm glad the Bible teaches stuff like this. I'm glad it tells me that that's okay when you have the dark night of the soul. Happened to David, happened to Elijah, happened to Jesus. 
Happened to Paul. And by the way, 11 out of the 12 disciples, they were all killed. They were all martyred. Verse 4. Return, O Lord, and deliver me. And save me for your mercy's sake, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my groanings. All night I make my bed swim. Well, wait a second. Is this the same guy who said, uh, (laughs) the Lord is my shepherd, he makes me lie down, and he gives me a good night's sleep? Are we talking about the same guy here? Is he, what's he, a schizo or what? No, no, he's normal. And we're going from Psalm 5 to Psalm 6, and it's normal. But this time, he did something, and now his bed is full of tears. I drudged my couch with my tears. My eyes waste away because of my grief. It grows old because of my enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer and let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly trouble. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. I mean, David was at both ends of the spectrum. He was a man's man. He was the best musician in in Israel, and he was the king. And he had all this going for him, and at the same time, he has always had somebody on his tail try to take him out. If it, if it wasn't Saul, running seven years from Saul, then he has his own kids wanting to take his place and usurp his throne. The one that really broke his heart is this guy, Ahipothel. This was his best buddy. He, he said, this is the guy I went to church with. He said, if it would have been an enemy that did it to me, I could have handled that. But it wasn't. It was Ahipothel. This was the guy who teamed up with with Absalom. This was one of David's trusted counselors. And this was the one that turned on David. And um, so he's he's grieved in Psalm 6. And here we have, this is a prayer, one of those prayers that's uh, a picture of uh, remorse and um, suffering. But it ends with, uh, this awareness that somehow God is hearing his cry, and that somehow is bringing him comfort. So by the time we get to verse 9, he says, the Lord has heard my supplication. And, um, you know, sometimes people will come in with real problems, and sometimes people will come in and they're just venting. And that's okay, I'll let them vent. But before they go, I say, basically, what we're having here today is you're venting, right? And he said, I guess that's true, or I guess that's, yeah, I guess I am. And I said, that's okay. But, you know, I don't want to tell you that I really don't care, but I'm really not that much of a compassionate type guy. (laughs) And if, if the truth would be known, but I want to tell you somebody who really does. And if I understand the Bible correctly, we're to cast our cares upon the Lord. So if people think that they come to a priest or some guy in a robe or some pastor or whatever, you're going to be really disappointed with me. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell a Paul Mall story. The first time I met Paul Mall, he's not here, so I could just go on and on and on. He comes in, and he pours out his heart for a good 45 minutes. And uh, when he got all done, just pouring his heart out to me, I mean, it was, it was pathetic. <laughs> what could I say? I said, are you done now? And he says, yeah. And he says, and I suppose you want some encouragement or word of advice from me. Yeah. I said, start reading your Bible and start going to men's prayer and don't miss it. That's it. And he left. And he, he tells the story better, better than I do. He says, I went and I poured out my heart to this guy, this pastor guy. He didn't care one bit word about what I said. He just blew me off completely and told me to start reading my Bible and go to prayer meetings. And now the guy who loves prayer meetings more than anybody else is Paul Mall. And uh, he prays for men's prayer. And um, he's become a very, very dear, close friend. And he gets what I was saying then. Because I'm not the Lord. And uh, yes, we have our responsibilities. But we read, if you put your trust in men, what's going to happen? You're going to be sorely disappointed with whatever that man or woman that woman is. Somebody want to give me an amen? I mean, Peter wanted... It's not that I don't want to be a nice guy. I want to be there to to listen to you. Peter did not want to deny the Lord. 
I mean, he swore he would never. I'll never do that. Those guys might flake out, Lord, but not me. I'm, I'm, I'm Rocky. I'm Peter. I'll never let you down. Well, Pete, I know you a little bit better than that. This night three times before the cock crows twice. Never happened. Well, it happened. What, what happened to Peter? The Bible says he went out and wept bitterly because something he thought he could never do, he did. So the whole idea here is, Lord, you have heard my supplication. And what we want to get as we make our way through the Psalms, unless you're taking and casting your cares upon the Lord, don't do it with men. You know, they'll let you down. We are told to pray for one another and confess our faults to one another. That's all true. And don't take me wrong. But the compassion that can only come from Christ, he's the only one that can really give it to you. Because he's the only one who really cared enough to really lay down his life the way he did. Last one, let's read through it because I want to get through this for for Sunday. This here, what I want to make mention of in, in seven, is written, and this is that you catch this. This is going to be a teaser for Sunday morning. It's uh, written, it's sung to the words concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. This is the only time in the Bible, Psalm 7, that Cush and a Benjamite are put together. And I'm not going to tell you, well, we kind of kind of told you who this is about. I'm going to read it, and it's going to be laying our foundation for, for Sunday. So David is writing this meditation, but it's concerning this um, uh, Cushite, who's also a Benjaminite. Cush, of course, was uh, the eldest son of Ham, the son of Noah. And then, the, then we have the tribe of Benjamin. Saul, here's the hint. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from those who persecute me and deliver me. Somebody's been persecuting David. Let, lest they tear me like a lion. Render me in pieces while there is none to deliver. I'll I'll tell you anyway. I can't keep it in. (laughs) This is Shimei. He's he's the Benjaminite that we read about back in in, um, uh, Kings or Samuel. As he's going out of town, Psalm 7 is about him. And that's who he, here's a guy who's laying on him. He's tearing at him like lion. That's what Shimei was doing. And Abishai said, let me take this guy out, David. He's cursed. He's cursing out my king. And David said, no. He says no to Abishai, but he says yes to the Lord. He took it to the Lord is the point that I'm making here. Oh, Lord, my God, if I had done this, if there was iniquity in my hands, if I had repaid evil to him who sat at peace with me, he's thinking of a hippothil right here when he's writing this. Or have plundered my enemy without cause, then let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Let him let him have trampled my life into the earth and lay my honor in the dust, Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift up yourself because of the rage of my enemies, and awake for me to your judgment. You have commanded. So the congregation of the people shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge. You know, as we look into a more in-depth look at this guy, Shimei, you know, he gets cut a lot of slack with David, but that's not the end of the story with Shimei. We'll finish that on Sunday. Judge me, O Lord. You do it according to my righteousness. Remember we read, let the guy curse on. Maybe the Lord wants this guy to curse me. I don't know. But he put it in the Lord's hands. O Lord, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end but establish the just, for the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. David saw this as a trial, as a test. What are you going to do? Are you going to turn Abishai loose, let him take care of it? Or is he going to trust in the Lord? He had the resources. Abishai could have taken him out real quick. He didn't do it. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. God will be my judge. And God is angry with the wicked every day. He does not turn his back. He will sharpen his sword. He bends his bows and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked travail with iniquity. Conceive 
trouble and brings forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it out, and he has fallen into the ditch which, which he made. We have the expression, give a guy enough rope and he'll hang himself. Interesting about Absalom, isn't it? How did he end up eventually? Hanging himself from a tree. His trouble shall return upon his own head. That's exactly what happens to Absalom. Comes full circle. Just happened to have long hair. Just happened to get tangled in that oak tree. Just happened to hang there between heaven and earth until until, uh, one of uh, David's men shows up. And his violence dealing shall come down on his own crown. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Psalm 7 is a song. But it's a song as he has in mind as he's leaving Jerusalem on the run, being cursed out by this Cushite who's from the tribe of Benjamin, who's a cousin of Saul. And that's all the clues I'm going to give you till Sunday morning. I'm at my time. Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for the Psalms. We thank you that we have the human emotion, the spectrum from great peace, great joy, to the very, very lowest parts of the human soul, the dark night of the soul. And we thank you that you want us to call upon you in both situations, to sing joyfully unto the Lord, but to be able to put music to a Psalm 6 or Psalm 7, where the human soul is poured out in such a way that it can only be expressed in music and in song. Thank you for this word that you've given to us tonight. And Lord, we just pray for Sunday morning that you give us more understanding and insight into your word. I pray you bless those that are having a season of joy right now. Their joy may be full. But I also pray this evening, Lord, for the one who's going through the fire and is really down in the dumps. Lord, may he find some encouragement here knowing that if it was true for Elijah and David and yourself, Lord, and the Apostle Paul and the disciples, that is going to be true for us also. So, Lord, bless your people as we go out tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.